series called Stronger for a few weeks now. Today is message number six, and we are going through the book of 2 Corinthians. Now, to remind you what 2 Corinthians is, it's a letter that Paul wrote. Who's Paul? Well, Paul's a guy who hated Christians and then later became one because he had a life-changing experience when he encountered Jesus alive after being crucified. And Paul, a guy who knew all about crucifixion, when he saw Jesus alive after that, he was like, whoa. And as a result, his life changed. And so the guy who was against Christianity is now for Christianity. And he goes through the ancient world starting new churches. He goes to a town called Corinth. Those people are kind of messed up. It's like a Las Vegas sort of experience in that town. But he starts a church right there. And then he leaves after about a year and a half. And while he's gone, things don't go so well for that church. They get messed up. So he writes them a letter. And he writes them a letter to try to get their act together. And they don't respond very well to the letter. So he makes a personal visit. He shows up. But while he's there, there's an antagonist that opposes him so strongly, he gets upset, frustrated, and hurt, and runs away, runs north to Macedonia. So he's in Corinth in the southern portion of Greece. And then he runs north to Macedonia in the northern portion of Greece. And he's up there and he says, I can't visit them again. He vows to not visit them again. But he writes them another letter. And this letter is harsh. It's to the point. It tells them they need to change their ways in some specific ways. And they respond part way at least. And since they respond favorably, Paul is overjoyed. And he says, wow, maybe I should make another visit to them. And so he plans to make another visit to them. But this time he's going to send another letter first And this other letter is going to prepare the people spiritually for Paul's visit. And it's also going to prepare them financially because there's something else that Paul is up to. You see, Paul has been trying to raise money for the church in Jerusalem. He first introduced this to the church in Corinth. He said to the church in Corinth, I want to raise some money. And they got all excited. They got really overjoyed. They're like, sure, we want, we want to give money to the church in Jerusalem. And they get really excited. And now Paul is like, okay, it's time for you to come through on your commitment. So he's about ready to send an envoy to them to get the money stuff settled. But let me remind you of why he's sending this money to Jerusalem. You see, the church in Jerusalem started it all. That's where Jesus was crucified and rose again. And so the church in Jerusalem is the beginning of it all. And all of the other people who have become believers, including you and me, all of us owe our existence to what happened in that church in Jerusalem. And that church in Jerusalem, when they first got started, sacrificed financially for each other and for the mission of getting the message out. And as a result, when famine hit Jerusalem, they all became super poor. And so for the rest of the New Testament, the church in Jerusalem was impoverished, they were persecuted, they were struggling, and Paul said, I've started so many other churches, I'm going to take some money from the people in the churches I started, and we're going to send it back to Jerusalem. And those other churches mostly were like, yeah, that's a good thing. And the Corinthians were the first ones to jump on board. And so Paul says, all right, Corinthians, it's time for you to make good on your promise. And he's writing this letter to ask them for money. And so in chapter 8 and 9, he lays it out for them that the time is now for them to actually pony up the dough. So let's start at the end of chapter 7. 
All right? Take a look at the end of chapter 7 with me. This is what we looked at last week. Paul says, I had boasted to him. That's Paul talking about Titus. I boasted to Titus about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you is true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is an amazing line. What Paul is saying there is he says, I've been boasting about you to Titus. I've been telling Titus how great you are. I've been telling all these other churches how great you are. And I'm so overjoyed with how great you Corinthians are. I'm so overjoyed. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. Hang on for a second. These are the Corinthians we're talking about. If you've been with us for any of the previous Sundays, you know that the Corinthian church is messed up. You know that the people in the Corinthian church cannot be trusted to do anything. You know the people in the Corinthian church, sometimes they like Paul, sometimes they don't like Paul, sometimes they do the right thing, sometimes they do the wrong thing. These, these people, you can't have confidence in these people at all, especially because they promised to give, and now it's years later, and they haven't yet given. So what's the deal, Corinthians? But Paul says, I have complete confidence in you. You need to know that's for two reasons. Number one, Paul doesn't have confidence in the Corinthian human beings. He has confidence in the God of the Corinthian human beings. He has confidence that these people who have given their hearts to God are people who will let God work in their lives. That's the confidence Paul has. At least it's a hope and a confidence. And the second reason he has confidence in them is because he's buttering them up. Just a little bit. He's trying just a little bit, he's trying just a little bit to say, I have all the confidence in the world in you, so let's talk about this gift. (laughs) That's basically what he does, because the very next verse, chapter 8, verse 1, he jumps into talking about this gift. But before we jump into it, I have to take us on a small little detour. And the small little detour is this. Church people have a lot of reasons why they should not give money to some particular cause or whatever. Church people have a lot of different reasons. I've heard a lot of the different reasons. And so just because I want to sort of set the stage with some preliminary information for these two chapters, I want to walk you through the five reasons people give for not giving. Five reasons people give for not giving. Sometimes they tell me these reasons directly. Sometimes they don't. But here I'm just going to walk through them real briefly in order. Number one, the first reason is this. Tithing is an Old Testament obligation, but Christians have been set free from the Old Testament law. Okay, so tithing is an Old Testament obligation. And some people are like, well, Christians don't have obligations to the Old Testament law. And uh, I'll respond to that in just a little bit, but this is one of, the, one of the things that people say to me. They're like, I'm a Christian, I'm free from the Old Testament law, and that whole idea of giving regularly a certain amount, that whole idea of feeling obligated to make a donation, that's just antiquated Old Testament obligations. Here in the New Testament, we don't have obligations such as that. Well, of course, unless you read the New Testament where you see all sorts of obligations that Christians have for actually living holy lives and taking care of the poor and stuff. But I'll I'll get into it a little bit later. The second objection that I hear from people, the second reason people don't give uh, is this one. Let's put it up here. God loves a cheerful giver and I'm not cheerful. (laughs) God loves a cheerful giver and I'm too stressed and strapped to give cheerfully. So because I can't give cheerfully, 
I shouldn't give it all because God loves a cheerful giver. And I just want to point out to that person, God, the verse says, we're going to look at it today. It's in the chapters that we're going to be reading. It's in chapter 9. God loves a cheerful giver. It has the end to that. It's not, good, it's not just that God loves cheerful people. He just wants you to be happy. And if giving is going to make you not happy, then you shouldn't give. No, God loves a cheerful giver. He'll take an uncheerful giver. <laughs> He'll, he's, I mean, but he, he loves. And do you want to be loved by God? Yeah, he loves us. He loves us because of Jesus. He loves all of us exactly the same. We can't earn his love anymore, except for the fact that we also know that God loves cheerful givers. Well, I can't be cheerful. Well, get over it. Find, find a way to be cheerful and a giver. Anyway, we'll come into that later today. And look at the next one. The next reason people give, I don't trust the church to manage my gifts properly, so I'll do my giving elsewhere. Listen, if you can't trust the church with money, why do you trust the church with spiritual things? Now, frankly, there are a lot of churches that have not been trustworthy with money, but I want to remind you of something. It's never the church that's untrustworthy with the money. It's a person in the church who has inappropriate access to the money who does something with the money that some churches then have problems with. So sometimes there are churches that make that mistake and I'll talk to you in a little bit about what we're doing to try to mitigate against that. But I just want to let you know some of the reasons. People would say, well, I don't want to give to this church because I can't trust it financially. Well, look at the next one. This is reason number four. Uh, it says, I'm a generous person. I give every time I feel like it. I give every time I feel moved to give. This is the person who says, I just let the Spirit lead me. And when the Spirit leads me to give, yeah, I'll give. Why, just last week, I gave five whole dollars to this homeless person. I'm a generous person. How much have you given this last year? Well, five dollars. Because God really moved in my heart that one time. Now, if you trust your own heart on whether or not you should be generous, well, you've got a lot of other problems too. But uh, this is the one. It's, I'm a generous person. I give every time I feel moved to give. I wait around until I feel moved to give to something, and then I'll give to that thing a whole giant amount of like, I'll write a check for almost $20 sometimes. Anyway, let's go on to the last one. I'm a generous person, but others are taking care of things just fine. I'm a generous person, but other people got there before me. So... There's nothing left for me to do. I'm, so I'm, I'm just going to stay here with my money because other people already took care of the thing. These are some of the reasons. Now, people don't say them to me to my face, but sometimes they say them to someone else who then does say them to me. But these are some of the reasons that I hear from people of why a Christian might not give. And I want you to know something. Every single one of these is addressed in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, with the exception of the first one on tithing. Paul doesn't talk about tithing. And so I have to spend just one quick moment about that. In chapters 8 and 9, when Paul is talking about all these other things about finances, he doesn't talk about tithing, and you should know why. Number one, Paul is talking about a special offering for the church of Jerusalem. He's not talking about the general operations of the church. We know that Paul believes in financial obligations for the general operations of the church. He will tell the people of the church that they have to pay their teachers. They're supposed to pay the elders who teach and the elders who lead well. That's supposed to happen in the context of the church. And so he actually says that they're supposed to pay. But how do they get the money to pay for that person's livelihood? Well, Paul never says. 
Well, I'll let you know on a secret. Paul was a Jewish person, and, and J- Jews believed in the Old Testament covenant. In the Old Testament covenant, the church was supported, or the, the temple organization was supported by the tithes of the people. And so Paul had intrinsically an awareness of the tithe. I don't know if he ever actually taught it or not. He doesn't teach it here, but there are at least four reasons why I think it's a principle that still applies to us today. The first of all is that the principle of the tithe, you need to know, predates all the law. It shows up 500 years before Moses got the Ten Commandments. Tithing showed up 500 years before the law, and then Jesus himself reaffirms it when Jesus is around. He says to the Pharisees, listen, you tithe tiny little things, but you're not very kind to people. I think you should tithe, but you should also be kind. So Jesus affirms the tithe, but also tells people they should be good to each other. Reason number two, tithing is an easy, simple way of a church doing the other obligations to take care of the place where it meets and to take care of the leaders that it has. Did you know, now this is just bottom line math. I'm, I know I'm going to be speaking over some of your heads because as soon as I use math terms, some of you shut off, but pay attention to this one. We all can understand this one, okay? Here we go. This is very simple math. It takes 10 tithing people to support one staff member in a church. It's a very simple, simple thing. It doesn't require a whole lot of effort. It just takes 10 tithing people to support one staff person at the average income of the people in the church. I mean, it's a very simple, pragmatic sort of approach. So we got two reasons there. And uh, so tithing, another reason is that it's the only thing in the Bible that is a 100% equalizer of all people. Tithing is the only thing. Do you realize if you make a million dollars and you tithe, you have given exactly the same amount of heart as the person who makes zero dollars and tithes? That's the same. Zero dollars when you tithe it is zero dollars. If your heart is right, you can be a tither even without any income. And that's one thing. It's just about the only thing that is the perfect equalizer from all of different strata of Christianity. And then the last thing is something we will actually see in chapters 8 and 9. Tithing is one of the few commands in the Bible with a promise attached to it, a guarantee attached to it. And it's a guarantee that is so strong, God even says, just test me and see if I don't bless your socks off. So I've taken a lot of time to talk, but now we have to actually get into our passage. And we've got two whole chapters we need to get through, so you're going to have to listen fast. Chapter 8, 2 Corinthians, verse 1. Here we go. He says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Wait a minute. I have to stop here already. Um, See, uh, I told you that we were going to be talking about money, right? I told you that we were going to be talking about Paul asking them to give some money to this thing in Jerusalem, and um, I sort of spoke a little bit incorrectly because Paul doesn't use the word money in these two chapters. What you will see over and over is the word grace. Paul says, I want you to know about the grace thing that is happening with the Macedonian churches, the churches north of you, Corinth, the churches that I ran to when you made me mad. Um, Verse 2. 
In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urged. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. You're going to see that word grace show up a few more times. But there's a weird phrase in there in verse 2, just a weird thing that Paul does. He says the Macedonian churches are in the midst of a severe trial. We don't know what their trial is. Maybe it's persecution. Maybe Christians are getting killed. Maybe it's a famine. Maybe there's not a lot of food to go around. Maybe it's financial. Maybe they've got no money. In fact, we know that a little bit because Paul calls them people of extreme poverty. So here, he says, they are in the midst of trial, extreme trial, but their joy, overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty have combined to produce rich generosity. That's a weird math equation right there, isn't it? Go ahead and write that down. He says, their joy plus poverty makes for rich generosity. Listen, have you ever been so joyful about something that you spent way too much money on it? Yeah. Uh, that's like something that all of us have experienced. Back in 2009, um, Jen's birthday was around the corner, and um, I hadn't bought anything yet, and I had like a week or a week or two left. And in the process, a friend of mine who was a pastor in town had posted on Facebook that he had two tickets to a U2 concert in Soldier Field in Chicago on September 11th, which was my wife's birthday. Still is, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and, um, and he posted that he had these tickets available and that he had paid an astronomical amount of money to get the tickets, but that he no longer could go. And he's a pastor friend of mine, and I care for him. And I want to make sure that he is well taken care of in his life. I don't want him to have any undue burdens on his life. And on top of it, my wife really likes uh, concerts. And of all the concerts we've been to, well, she likes them all, but U2 is one of our favorite concerts to go to. And so I saw that. It's birthday. It's helping out my friend. It's winning major points with Jen. And I don't, should I tell you how much I paid? I don't want to. For two tickets, not each, but total, it was $500. Oh, yes. At that same concert, we were like seven rows back from the grass. It was amazing. It was amazing. And then another guy from this church was also at that same concert, and he texted me while he was there. And he was like way up in the nosebleeds and saved a whole bunch of money. But... Sometimes, you know, sometimes you just spend a lot of money because you know about some joy that's coming around the corner. And I tell you what, I don't regret spending that money. Although I do kind of regret spending that money. But, um, but anyway, so here's the deal. Sometimes incredible joy can make you generous. Right? But joy plus poverty turns your generosity into something rich. 
That generosity is richer than other people's generosity. That generosity is worth more than other people's generosity. Because out of their overwhelming joy, plus their poverty, it welled up into them. And I don't know how much money they gave, but clearly Paul thought they had given too much. And so he says, it's rich generosity. And now he's telling the Corinthians about the Macedonians. He's like, hey, let me tell you about the Macedonian churches and how well they did it. In fact, he even says the Macedonian churches gave themselves to God first and then did the financial thing. And that's what you have to do. If you're going to give out of your own poverty, you have to give yourself to God first and say, God, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I got to give. I got to give. So now, what is Paul going to do? I mean, the question is, is it too much? It, did, the, did the Macedonian churches give too much? It, was this inappropriate? Let's keep reading. Go to verse 6. He says, So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. There it is, grace, that word again. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled you, just a little buttering up, you excel in everything, all kinds of things, so also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here Paul says it. He says, I told you about the Macedonians, and now it's your turn. And so the reason I told you about the Macedonians is because I'm going to compare you. I'm going to compare. We're going to have a little competition here. The Macedonians gave beyond their ability. The Macedonians gave all of this stuff. And so Paul says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a little comparison. You excel in all sorts of gifts. You excel in all sorts of spiritual things. You excel in faith and all sorts of these other things. I want to see if you can excel in this grace of giving. So we're going to create a little competition. We're going to put you here, you Corinthians right here, and we're going to put... You expect the Macedonians. But he didn't say the Macedonians at that point. He said Jesus, right? He says, I want to create a competition with you and let me tell you about Jesus. For your sake, he became poor so that you could become rich. Paul says, I got to tell you about the grace of Jesus. I'm done with the Macedonians. I told you about them. That's good. I mean, that's a good thing, but it's not really the comparison I'm trying to make. I'm comparing you to the grace of Jesus. See, at that point, we begin to realize that Paul isn't just talking about finances. He's talking about something bigger. He's talking about something deeper. He's talking about something fuller. The financial thing, the project of raising money for Jerusalem, this financial service to the saints, he calls it, is just an aspect of a larger thing. But it has fingers in our finances in a very important way. I want you to write it down this way. Financial hardship, and we all experience financial hardship, but financial hardship is just another opportunity for grace. Financial hardship is just another opportunity for grace. When they are going through hardship, I can be like Jesus. I can, I can be a person who steps into some poverty so that they can become rich. But then I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but if I do that all the time, then I'm going to become poor. 
And if I become poor, well, then what? Well, guess what? Jesus became poor. And so if I'm the one experiencing the financial hardship, I'm like Jesus. And so I can do that in the case that other people might be made more wealthy. Not financially only, but all around. You see, what Paul is trying to say here is he's saying, listen, the financial thing, the financial problem, the financial hardship that you are sometimes in by force and sometimes you step into willingly, that financial hardship is just another opportunity for you to be like Jesus. It's just one more opportunity for you to express grace. But of course the question is, well, but Jesus, do I really have to go all the way? Do I have to impoverish myself? Do I have to go all the way to making myself poor so that other people around me can be rich? Do I have to reject all the different things of this world? Jesus is, that feels too much. Look at verse 10. He says, and here is my judgment about what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Paul isn't saying, okay, everybody pull out your credit cards and let's go into debt to give money to the church so the church can then go into further debt to give money to homeless people or something along those lines. No, he says the gift is acceptable according to two things, willingness and ability. God knows that you have limits. The question is, do you? Have you lived within limits of your ability so that then you can also be a participant in generosity? Or have you, like most of the rest of us, pushed your own life past its limits so there are no margins left over for anyone else? See, God says it's based on what you have, not what you don't have. And you and I base our lives on what we don't yet have. And so we will take what we don't yet have to get something else that we don't yet have and then we live under the don't yets all the time and can't ever work from the position of have. See, Paul is here talking about a principle that you don't have to go poor. You have to be a good steward and then be willing. But keep reading. Verse 13, he says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it's written, the one who gathered much did not have too much and the one who gathered little did not have too little. That's a statement from the Old Testament. You know the story of the Israelites wandering in the desert and they get free food every single day from God. It's called manna. God provides this free food for them every single morning. They just go out on the ground and they collect it. And then there's this passage in the Old Testament where it says the person the person who gathered much did not have too much, and the person who gathered little did not have too little. And you think of that as just some sort of miracle, you know, that the people who gathered a lot, they just miraculously didn't have too much, they were able to eat it all. And the people who gathered a little bit, they just miraculously didn't need to eat that much, and so they, they had exactly what they needed. But Paul does something different. He twists that passage because he says what's really going on is that the people who gathered too much didn't have too much, and the people who gathered too little didn't have too little because God gave the whole community exactly what it needed, and these people shared. 
See, that's Paul's point. Paul's point isn't that magically he made some people's stomachs bigger so that they could eat more. His point is that the people who had extra shared with the others. And he says, I'm not looking for one person to be here with a lot and one person to be here with a little. What I'm looking for is equality. Or a word that I would use in our world today is mutuality. A word that says, I am going to make my sacrifices to lift you up. And one of these days, you might be making sacrifices to lift me up. And we are going to live in mutuality. Write that down. The goal is equality, but really mutuality, this, this cooperation with each other. God doesn't want you to be poor while other people are rich. What he wants is for Christians to live mutual lives because God says, I've given enough for all of you. So those who have gathered too much need to do something for those who have gathered too little. Because God is above it all, and he's in charge. Keep going. Let's see what else Paul has to say here, because the next big question is, okay, Paul, if we're going to give you money, we need to know if you can be trusted. And Paul says, fine. I want to know if you can be trusted. And so here's what it says. Uh, Pick it up in verse 16. He says, thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. We don't get that guy's name. I want to know that guy's name. We don't get his name. Paul just says, and I'm sending to you that guy. And we're like, well, who's that guy? And Paul's like, I don't have to tell you who that guy is. Everybody knows who that guy is. And we're just sending you that guy. And the Corinthians are like, we're getting that guy? And Paul's, yep, yep, you're getting that guy. I want to know who that guy is. Verse 19, what is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help Paul. You have that guy helping you out with this thing? You have that guy watching over this money? Okay, I didn't know you had that guy. Verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we're taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. Paul says, you can trust us, because we're doing everything we possibly can do to be trustworthy. Keep going. Verse 22, in addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. We don't get that guy's name either. It's like, Paul, you're sending the other guy too? We're getting that guy and the other guy? I don't know. I wish I knew their names. Verse 23, as for Titus, he's my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so the churches can see it. Paul says, okay, you can trust me. Now, can I trust you? Can I trust you to step it up and to actually pay what you said you would pay? Keep reading. Verse 1 of chapter 9. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. Okay, can the Macedonians trust me, Paul says, because I've been boasting about you. Now you have to come through for me to be trustworthy to them. Keep going. Four, verse four, if any Macedonians come with me 
and find you unprepared. We, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. I only have one thing to say about this. Paul goes through great pains to prove to those people that he's trustworthy and to ask them if they can be trusted. And the only thing I have to say about this is to help you understand why I think you can trust us as a church. We are trying to do everything we possibly can do to be right when it comes to accounting, when it comes to uh, relationship with the state, when it comes to taxes and all that stuff, we're doing everything we can do to be as right as we possibly can. But the part of it that you need to know is that our financial records are completely open to any one of you. If any one of you want to see anything about our finances, we will show them to you with one exception. We won't tell you who gave how much. But we already have a financial report that we print up every single month that removes people's names from it. And so if you want to know any of that stuff, you can just ask for it. And we will give that information to anyone who wants it, who is a financial contributor or who intends to be. Because we want you to have a vested interest in this if you want to have a vested interest in this. But it's open. That's just kind of who we are and how we operate. We've been that uh, the whole time we've existed as a church. But There's a bunch more that I have to race through here, so let's keep going. Because, of course, convincing you that you should give money and convincing you that we can be trusted doesn't change everything. Bottom line, we're all just going to simply be the teenager or the three-year-old who looks at the person asking for money and will say, without saying it out loud, but I don't want to. I don't want to. It's my money. Verse 6, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will reap generously. God, you're telling me that if I send generously away from me, that somehow generosity will come towards me. This is not a principle about money. It's not if I send money away, then money comes to me. That's not the principle. The principle is if I sow generosity, then generosity comes back to me. That's the principle. God, you're telling me that if I sow generously, I receive generously? Well, where do I get the seed to sow? Keep reading. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And there's your loophole. Every one of you get your loophole. I'm not feeling happy today, God, so I don't have to give any money, right? Keep reading. He says, and God is able to bless you abundantly. Would that make you cheerful? And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Would you like to be a person? Listen, let's just be honest with each other. Would you like to be a person who always has everything you need for anything you need to do? Would you like to be that person who always is supplied with every resource for every good thing you ever intend to do? Would you like to be that person? Yes. Well, God loves a cheerful giver. See, that's our problem. Our problem is I'm not cheerful, I shouldn't give. Well, I'll tell you how you can become cheerful. Give. Because guess what? When you give, God makes this amazing promise to you that he responds to generosity with generosity. And keep reading. Keep reading. He says in verse 10, Now he who supplies seed to the sower. Who's that? That's God, right? 
God is the one who gives you your seed and bread for food and will supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. God is the one who gives you your means of income and God is the one who brings you your income and he is the one in charge of it and he can make it bigger if he wants. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. God makes this insane promise, an insane promise that he will fully empower givers. What? God says, you want to be a giver? Tell you what, I'll give you everything you need to give. I will fully supply everything you want to give. But, but you got to be the one who lets it go. God will fully supply. Now listen, I want to show you just a couple things. Because this principle that God replenishes the supply of the giver is not a principle that says, God, I give you a dollar and you respond by giving me a Lamborghini. That's not. That's not the way it works. It's not, God, I'm going to help this person out with five bucks, and then I'm going to go check my pants pocket in my closet to look for the five dollars that you're going to put in there when I get back over there. It's not, God, I give you some, and then you give it back. It's something completely different and better. It's a promise that God has given from Genesis all the way to Revelation. This is not a New Testament promise. This is not an Old Testament promise. This is a God promise. He has done this consistently throughout the entire pages of Scripture where he will say this, if you are a giver, I will give. It's all over. The one biggest tithe passage that people use in churches is the one from Malachi 3.10. It says this, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. Listen, God gives this promise, and people quote this all the time when they're trying to get you to give your 10%. And that's wonderful, and it's fine, and the promise is true, and because Paul echoes it in the New Testament, I believe the Old Testament promise is still true. I believe that those who are tithers get their socks blessed off. I believe that. I think that's the way God works. The problem is, why in the world, if this is the principle, why would you ever stop at 10%? I want to take you to another passage. In Deuteronomy, yes, Deuteronomy, guess what? If you do a search for, for the words bless you, and I'm not talking about sneezing, but if you do the search for the word bless you in the Bible... If you get bored with me, just do that. You know, search for the words bless you in the Bible and you will find throughout the book of Deuteronomy, it shows up like eight times and every one of those times it comes on the heels of someone giving a financial gift. Let me just show you some of them. Here we are in Deuteronomy chapter 14. He says, at the end of every three years, bring the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns. Scan down because you're going to help the fatherless and the widows so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Bring the tithe, take care of the homeless and the poor so that God can bless you. Go to the next one. On the next slide, he says, you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. There need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. 
For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations but borrow from none. God says, you need to cancel debts. Why? Because I'm going to bless you. Keep going to the next one. In Deuteronomy 15.10, he says, Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to do. There will always be poor people. I command you to be open-handed. Listen, this principle is not a New Testament principle. It's not an Old Testament principle. It's a God principle. If we are generous, God will bless Let's finish out the chapter. Verse 11, chapter 9. He says, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. People are giving thanks to God because of you. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel. You claim to be followers of the gospel? Well, you're doing it, and people will praise God because of that. Keep going. And for your generosity. You've been generous. Other people are going to praise God for that, for sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. When you're generous, other people pray for you. They like you. Verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That verse 15 kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere because it does. Because you see in verse 14, Paul made a mistake, kind of. He says, because of the surpassing grace God has given you. It's not a real mistake. In fact, it's a beautiful accident. Or maybe he had it planned the whole time. But at the very beginning of chapter 8, Paul says, I want you to know of the grace given to the Macedonian churches. And then he talks about this gift in a code word. And he uses grace all throughout these chapters as his code word for this effort. The Macedonian church has grace. I want you to excel in grace. They've excelled in grace. I want you to be people of grace. I want you to do this act of grace. I want you to show this grace. I want you to be people of grace. Grace, 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 grace. And then he gets to the end of verse 14, and he says, because of the surpassing grace God has given you, and all of a sudden Paul is like, whoa, I've been using the word grace this whole couple of chapters. I've been using the word grace to refer to this money. Grace is on the tip of my tongue. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's like Paul has this moment where the whole world just shuts down and he's realized that he just mentioned God's grace and he has to stop. He has to say, wait a minute there. Put a period at the end of that sentence. Hit enter like eight times. Give me some good white space there and then print this line. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift and make them turn the page before they see him any other words because that right there is it. That's the whole thing. That's what Paul is saying. He's like, guess why we are generous? It's because God is generous. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He sent his son to us that we could live in relationship with our heavenly father for all eternity. What an amazing, indescribable gift. Why would we not be people of generosity? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 
Listen, I know that um, when we talk about money, there are all sorts of questions that can come into people's minds. Well, what is the money going to be used for? And, and how do I know it's going to accomplish the goal that it's going to accomplish? And should I give on a basic every kind of month principle? Or should I give uh, where, when the Spirit moves me, when my heart is led and all those things? And I want to say the answer to 100% of those questions is just simply yes. Because see, this is the deal. Financial hardship is a moment of grace. Someone else needs my grace. And someday I'm going to need their grace but all the time I get God's grace. And what an indescribable gift it is for me to know that I can step into this pathway of generosity and be that. Now, I don't know specifically what that means for you today. I didn't bring this message to you because it was Gratitude Sunday and I wanted to try to convince you to give more than normal. That's not the reason that I'm bringing this message to you today. I'm bringing this message to you today because we all need it all the time and because it's in chapter 8 and 9 and we're going straight through it. But I'll tell you what, this is the reason we do what we do on Gratitude Sunday. I want you to come forward. I want you to gratefully receive once again the gift, God's indescribable gift of Jesus for you. Receive that. Receive the forgiveness. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. And then I want you to step into the world of generosity and just test God and see if he's willing, see if he still is able to bless your socks off the way he has promised to his people throughout all of history. Because he's a giver and God gives to givers. Let me ask you to spend a few moments in reflection before we conclude our time with our communion and our offering. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.